Hello, listening people. Hello. Hello, Bartek. How are you doing? Good, Ryan. How are you (laughs) doing? I'm doing pretty spooky, Bartek. I'm feeling spooked. I'm feeling spooky. I'm feeling spooey and spoozed and... All the all the kind of Octobery type feelings. Mm, you sound like a wolf. I'm I'm Woofy, uh, the dog from Terminator Two, the the fake dog name. Yeah, you said Woofy. That means that means you don't know the dog's real name. Um, what was his real name? It was like Max, wasn't it? Yeah, it was Max. <laughs> I'm just a mummy this week. Yeah, you're just a mummy this week. You're you you're wrapped up, um, nice and tight. Uh, you're yeah, I, you're I, that I, failed Tom Cruise franchise. I watched um I watched DIY Mummy and I'm already <laughs> uh, the famous the famous special feature on the rise and fall of Baal the DIY of a mummy yeah yeah special so, features were great on Mystery Box especially um what was it Club Sexy oh uh, yeah yeah with uh the, the film Deception but before. We go off the road of into just talking about weird featurettes on DVDs. Let's talk Pictures Powwow. It's our show, Bartek, in which we sit in our rooms separately in front of a microphone and we record our thoughts on a movie that has come recommended. The cycle of recommendations go you, then me, then the listening people. This time round, it's a you pick, and this is your pick for our spooky month. What did you give us? I chose the 1997 anime film Perfect Blue. And who's that created by for those who are keen on knowing? Yes, the director is Satoshi Kon, who previously on this podcast for our for my pick for the Christmas episode, we did uh, his third film, which was Tokyo Godfathers. And I said in that episode that I was thinking of picking Perfect Blue for our spooky month. Cool. And you did. You followed through on that. Those people out there wanting Bartek to follow through, don't worry. One day he will, f- he will pick that French Afrikaans movie. Okay? You've been you... waiting for four months, but you'll get it one day. Every time you bring it up, you always say it's an Afrikaans movie, and I don't know what language it actually is. But you said I... that. I swear you said that. I only me. said it was a French African film. I swear, I swear. Who cares? Honestly, we'll, we'll one day we'll find out <laughs> and watch it. Honestly, that's yeah. the that will be the spookiest pick of them all. <laughs> I found it on YouTube, but um, no subtitles, so I don't know what no I'm going to do. So we are doing Perfect Blue. We're going to be talking about this spoilers and all. So if you have not watched this film, make sure to watch it before listening to this. It is a thriller. It has it has its thrilling moments. It has mystery. It has suspense. It has all this stuff going on that is beneficial if you watch it. If you just watch it yourself. Um, so go ahead, go away, go watch it if you haven't seen it because we are going to talk about it all. Bartek, what's your history with this film? So last year, you and I had a hiatus of sorts in October. Um, we mutually mm. both had reasons that we couldn't do the podcast. Uh, you were recovering from wedding and I was celebrating my surgery. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And during that period, it was between Reanimator and, um, and uh, The Shining. Mm. Um, obviously, I was in bed a lot from recovery and I ended up watching a lot of, and I explained this in the Shining episode, but I'll give it again, a lot of really weird, like, anime stuff. 
a lot of things that are considered like mind screwy that are you know twist your expectations part way through mm. which um you know a more cynical person might say that they're a bit more pretentious stuff mm. um but i you know i i really enjoyed this experience so this was very much um a period where i was experiencing a, a certain type of thing um it began with me watching an anime that satoshi Kon made uh, this director He's known for having directed five things, the fourth thing being this anime called Paranoia Agent. Mm. And uh, it got me into this mood to actually check out the rest of the stuff he'd done, since I'd seen a few years prior Tokyo Godfathers, but that was it. And I think I watched that anime Paranoia Agent all within one day, and then before bed I quickly checked out Perfect Blue. Nice. And, yeah, and that was just a really great experience, you know, watching this film in the dark... Um, having just come off of one of his other very dark works and just experiencing it for the first time. And I really, really enjoyed it. I then went and chatted to a friend about it and he wasn't as into, he's not really as into things that, um, are a bit less straightforward as I am. Mm. Uh, but I was just explaining to him like, no, no, I think that it has these merits. This film does. Um, and then... From that moment, because I remember last year I picked um, Story of Ricky and you you voiced your opinion that it was an odd choice for Spooky Month. Yeah. Um, but And I had that th thought as I finished um, Perfect Blue, like, oh man, if I saw this film like a month and a half earlier, I would have picked this for Spooky Month. I'm definitely going to do it for next year, I think. Yeah. Um, so definitely ever since I've seen the film, I've occasionally, you know, brought my mind back to thinking about it. Um, and there were even moments within the year where I was like, oh, maybe I should check it out like a second time and have, uh, the podcast viewing be the third time. Basically what I'm getting at is I've thought about this film a lot. Yeah. I did not know about this film or any of his other films until you mentioned them. Uh, I think... Yeah, we did Tokyo Godfathers first, right? I remember more specifically there was a time when you were talking about Millennium, Millennium Actress a lot, and that was the one that I was more interested in out of the ones you described. That one sounded particularly like something I would be into, and I have checked that film out in the interim, and I really did enjoy it. Um, so now I've seen three of his three of his things. Uh, mm -hmm. This the Perfect Blue, Tokyo Godfather's a Millennium Actress. And I really like um, his style, like animation-wise. I like the look of the characters. I like the color palette. The the kind of... Um, it has smooth kind of frame rate to it in comparison to some other kind of animes. It's not as stiff, uh, his stuff, as some mm -hmm. others. Yep. Uh, but, um, and I like... Uh, with this one and, and Millennium Actress, how how he handled uh, central leading characters, like female characters in particular, like you really understand their mental space and their headspace, and you really kind of get emotionally invested, not just invested, but you, you do get a level of kind of, uh, I guess, empathy or sympathy, like you really envelop what they're feeling as well. Um, mm -hmm. I didn't get that with Tokyo Godfathers as much. Tokyo Godfathers was a bit more uh, comedic in 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 a way than the other two. But 
Uh, I didn't know about Perfect Blue. You mentioned it, and then out of nowhere, it's just been like one of those things where once I've been mentioned about, once it's been mentioned to me, I notice that it's been mentioned everywhere. Like videos I watch and people I talk to, they're like, "Oh, Perfect Blue," and it's just coming up as this thing of like, "Oh, this is apparently a classic that I've." Never heard about until Bartek brought it up, or at least I didn't recognize its existence until you brought it up back in the day. And I now, before having watched it, I was under the impression that this is considered probably his his best film, and also one that uh, this one and Paprika, the ones that get ripped off a lot in Hollywood, <laughs> like this one, it's like Black Swan ripped this movie off. Even the IMDb trivia lists how Black Swan ripped this movie off, and I, I don't know, I read the IMDb examples, and they seem pretty piss poor, but uh, I don't know, I haven't seen Black Swan, so maybe I'll change my mind if I see that, but I hadn't seen this movie before, and I walked into it last night going, well, I'm, I, I hear that this is his best one, and I gotta say, I, I, I enjoyed it the best out of all of them. Oh, that's good. I enjoyed its story, its characters, all of it. Uh, although I do prefer, because this is his first film, right? Yeah, directorial debut. Yeah, uh, the only thing that I didn't care for as much is the the actual uh, the animation. Like that gets better as his films go on, in my opinion. Like the actual look and the kind of quality of it. But but but. It still has his style, his his uh, flair for kind of exaggerated features of characters. Mm-hmm. This one with eyes a lot, weird eyes um, and brows and stuff. But I really enjoyed this. I, I thought this was his best. I messaged you last night about how uh, I was really thrilled to see a movie of his that didn't have comedy in it. Because I mentioned Tokyo Godfathers, and I've mentioned this off off the pot about Millennium Actresses, I like those movies, and the comedy in those are fine, like, I don't hate it, but I often wonder, would this story have been better told without the comedy, more so with Millennium Actress? And this film didn't even attempt being funny at at all. Yeah, it had moments of lightness, but not really any outright comedy. It didn't have comedy characters. You know, that's true, yeah. Like his other films that I've seen, like Tokyo Godfathers, I don't care about it as much in that regard of a criticism because that film is going for a more comedic, light tone in comparison to the others, but to to this and Millennium Actress. But I was really, really, really happy that this film didn't have any comedy because I was keen on seeing if how he could tell a story without relying on those comedy characters, and it was great. I loved it. I'm really happy to hear that, yeah. This this is definitely my favourite of the stuff he's done. And I remember that message you sent me last night began with, like, um, not going to tell you my full feelings, but... And then you followed up with, like, something that seemed complimentary. So I'm like, ooh, is this going to be, like, a law of opposites? He said something vague but nice because he didn't really like it. But no, I'm glad to hear that it worked on you. Yeah, it really it really did. I, I found it... Um... Interesting how it's aged as well. Like obviously, there's there's the stuff about the internet and all that that hasn't aged as well. Obviously, like but it's set in the time. But there's lots of things 
uh, that's still a very striking and applicable to today, like that 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 fever pitch about pop stars, you know, your J-pop and your K-pop stars that this film was exploring, and that still is very relevant today. Like even you know, like over the last few years, there have been those pop stars that have literally killed themselves because of how terrible it is to live in that lifestyle with those fans and stuff. So yeah. that that was really striking. Yeah, and even just, like, because Satoshi Kon, his whole thing is, like, looking at, you know, dualities, realness, fakeness kind of thing. Um, this film was really going for a, a real person versus their avatar kind of thing. So even on mm. smaller scales, like, you know, people with online followings, mm. um, you know, you can have that whole thing of, you know, the the perfect person that you present to people, your audience. Yeah, and... You know, although, like, technical-wise, like, you know, obviously we've moved beyond where that, you know, the internet was back then, the the exploration of how dangerous the internet can be and how it can really mess with your head is still very on on point. It's still very true. You know, yeah, you may look at it if you're, you know, you're watching it and you, you don't really give it the context, but you're looking at it like, oh, that cute little computer. Like, it's really funny that a woman her age doesn't know anything about computers, but, like, the other woman does, who I think is supposed to be older than her, at least, knows way more about the internet and computers, and that's kind of like a funny thing to look at today. But the actual message, the actual thing being explored about the, the dangers that that the internet can have and the power it can bestow upon people is still really true, and that's still being explored very often. Like, recently, a movie that I would perhaps suggest later down the road for Spooky Month is uh, Ingrid Goes West. That film really explores the parasocial relationships that the internet offers. And this film, I wasn't expecting it to do that. I was expecting it to be, you know, a stalker thriller um, but I wasn't expecting it to incorporate that element into it, and it was a pleasant surprise. Yeah, I really like how she went from not knowing anything about the internet and, like, cutely asking, like, oh, teach me how it works, and then when she sees that website that's, you know, the fake her has put up, um, she initially starts off kind of warm to it, but very quickly realizes, wait a second, this is actually really creepy. <laughs> yeah, they know too much. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, dude. So how did it feel seeing it now upon the rewatches? How does it uh, stack up for you? Because for me, you know, this is my first time. I, I didn't know where the twists and turns were going to be. Like, I had my ideas and my theories, but how does it hold up on rewatches? Yeah, it holds up pretty well. Like, obviously, the first time, um, the kind of way I described its appeal to my friend on a more literal level was that... um. It's a film that, like a lot of the other things I did watch in October, it does want to confuse you, but that confusion is a big part of it because the main character is confused and you don't know what's real because she doesn't know what's real and that's kind mm. of the journey that it's taking you on. Um, on this viewing, because I knew you know all of the major twists and turns, I was you know focusing a bit more on like the you know the avatar versus real self theme. Um, all the little bits of foreshadowing throughout it and, and allusions to that idea. Um, I have, a, because I've engaged with some Japanese media over the years, I have some understanding of how fans uh, have a relationship with these kind of idol characters. Um, hmm. 
and even though the film doesn't like really open with like an explanation of the idol it's you know someone who has to maintain an air of uh, chastity and uh has to always be worried about her image even if she's not working because you know you don't punch out of the job throughout the yeah. film there are plenty of notions throughout that you know lend credence to that idea so even if you don't walk in knowing about like oh what is an idol anyway you know you kind of get the idea because the whole film's just hammering over the head with like oh she's an idol right no she's not an idol anymore so mm. she is doing a bit more you know risky things um so yeah just being able to focus on a lot of those ideas having you know known where everything's going uh it was really good and it was one where like as keen as i was to watch it again i wasn't thinking throughout like fuck yeah i'm watching perfect blue again it was like after i watched it i was like fuck yeah i watched perfect blue again yeah as um it took me a little while not too long to get into its rhythm and style because it was doing the intercutting between you know different times and stuff and it took me just a little while to get into that kind of editing and choices that were made but once i was in i was in and not to harp on too much about uh, millennium actress but it kind of showed you that uh and i don't know about his other films how how he does it as well but with millennium actress um, although I think Perfect Blue is a better film, Millennium Actress from the beginning, to me, did that kind of thing better of transitioning between time periods from the mm -hmm. get-go. While this, it took me a little while to warm up to that in comparison to that film. But from what I, I still enjoyed from what it. I remember, yeah, from what I remember, Millennium Actress was quicker to set up its premise. Mm -mm. Yeah, yeah, that is true. It kind of gets you into this is the hook of the film. While this one, it takes its time a little, although... It is shocking to me that this film is only 80 minutes long. Yeah, it didn't feel it, and that's not a insult. No, it felt like, and this is a positive, it felt like a nearly two-hour-long movie because it jams so much stuff in there in a positive way. Like, none of it feels like we're being rushed through or none of it feels like this is a bloated film. This is a film that... Really, it shows you that time management is really important because it's only 80 minutes... And it yeah. gets everything in there. Yeah, and it and by everything, it even has moments of like slowness where just mm. things are being established visually and not much is happening. Like like you said, the beginning of the film is kind of slow, but that's mm. in an eighty minute film. Yeah, yeah, and I I um yeah once she uh started to work on the TV show in particular, that's where I was properly really hooked in. Like when the 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 bomb happened. Um, mm -hmm. that's when I was like fully, fully, fully on board with it. The, the other times I was kind of dipping in and out of kind of like, okay, that's a little, okay, just getting, okay, that's an interesting way of doing it. Or, oh, okay, that. But, uh, once that happened, I was like, wow, okay, I'm excited to see where this is going to go. Well, yeah, and it went places. <sighs> yeah, it did. Um, yeah, with the twists, and I liked what you were saying about, like, the, you know, with, you, with idols and stuff, uh, that'll be interesting for me to see on, on the rewatch of feeling that out, because while I was watching it, what I really got emotionally, um, connected to with the film is, uh, and I like this in movies, but when characters who, um, uh, are going through kind of depressive states or emotionally exhaustive states and they kind of enter time displacement and dysphoria and disassociation 
And that's kind of what I really got out of the film is that feeling of going through that myself because I was so fully invested in her character and the f- and the making and the animation and the choices of editing and and the whole kind of sequence later on in the movie with the different takes like take two, take three. I was really uh, enveloped into the headspace of the character of feeling that uh, that displacement and that disassociation that I myself am now feeling like I'm mentally unstable, like I main character, which often doesn't happen for me in movies where it is the it's a psychological thriller and rarely ever in an animated version of those kind of things either so it really achieved its job in that regard for me yeah yeah that's what i meant earlier by like you know you're along the line uh, uh, along the ride for the confusion yeah yeah and uh yeah, and it's not just like i i was feeling confused it was also like i was feeling kind of at points uh, lightheaded in a way of just like how kind of uh, how the rhythm of it all was going and yeah and there was moments where there was just little choices like little things drawn in the background or like hey her fish are alive or now they're dead or now there's just two of them or certain lines of dialogue that then gets replayed and it's a different line of dialogue that really just twigged in my brain of like oh okay these are really interesting choices and I knew that the film would make like I knew in my brain that the film the way it's handling this is I'll be satisfied with it at the end. Like, you know, when you watch these type of movies, there's a sense of, "Mm, are they going to land this? Is this going to land? And I didn't have that worry. Yeah, that's a good point. I didn't have it either. Like, once all the crazy shit happens, because, you know, we've watched movies on the podcast, off the podcast that has like, oh, it's getting crazy and stuff. Like, you know, we just, I talked about earlier, um, Black Swan and Darren Aronofsky kind of has a history with Perfect Blue. With um, with Perfect Blue, you know, he bought the rights to it so he can use the bathtub sequence in Requiem for a Dream. And Darren Aronofsky is a filmmaker. When he does this kind of stuff, I don't really get into it. Like, I wasn't a huge fan of The Fountain. I'm not the biggest fan of Requiem for a Dream, although I think it is probably his best. I haven't seen Black Swan. Noah wasn't my thing mother like i when he does it i'm not i don't always have that is this gonna land or is this just gonna be metaphorical but this one there's lots of metaphors for sure but there is also that basic level of you could just watch this and just take from it the basic story of a woman trying to establish her own identity and there's a stalker plot going on and then at the very end she has a moment where she's like no i am me and i'm real you can just take it at face value. Don't have to just go, hmm, what were the metaphors? You can just take this as a fun, thrilling, little stalker movie. Yeah, on my first viewing, when I was trying to think of it more in a literal sense, like, okay, so what is real? And, like, what is she doing between these lapses? Mm. Um, in the end, it didn't really befuddle me in a way like even though i don't know all the things that happened between those lapses it all kind of made sense like the the conflict was resolved um Hmm. and 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 yeah just really tight-knit yeah and i really loved um and this is probably the best one uh the best thing about this movie for me in comparison to his others is the sound design, the audio mixing, and all the sound effects 
were really striking in this one. I never really noticed in, in these other films that I've seen, but this one, the fax machine noise and her repeating that phrase over and over again that's written on the site and and all of that, that I, like really striking sounds. Yeah, this movie has quite a lot of moments of silence and like, even though it does have background music at times, you really, when you think back on it, you don't really think of those. You think of like quiet moments where any sound that you hear kind of echoes. Hmm. Yeah, and, and and I think of the the scene where the scriptwriter is killed off, and you can hear the music in the background, mm. and just how loud it gets when he realizes where the source is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. God, that was such a fun sequence too. Oh, that was great. Ah, oh, so good. <laughs> I yeah, my favorite sequence in terms of sound stuff is the one where she gets the fax that says uh, uh, "traitor" again and again, mm-hmm. and just the sound of it, and um. Yeah, yeah, and you know we we hear that just that phrase being echoed over and over again, and it just pan like it zooms out of her apartment, and you're getting that feeling like someone's watching her through it, and and it's just like all the other windows are closed or kind of blurred out, and she's like the brightest thing in the cityscape from the distance. Yeah, that shot was really amazing. Like I I was staring at it for a while and being like, man, this almost looks kind of real. There's literally a shot in the movie that I was like, is this a real cityscape? There's just a random shot near near the kind of third act, I want to say, where there's just kind of a shot of the city. I want to say it's kind of like sunset type of feeling, and then it has a hard cut to cloudy blue sky for the setting of the next scene. And I was just looking at it, and it just kind of stayed on this city shot. And I was looking at it, and I'm like is this a photo? Like, this looks pretty real, actually. I was like, but it can't be. And then just cut away. And I was like, okay. Like, I was just thinking about it. I'm like, that one, I don't know. That's very interesting. I think I vaguely remember that, yeah. But I mainly think of that night shot. Yeah, yeah. I um, I was a bit surprised when I was reading the trivia for this movie. I was expecting more trivia for it, honestly. Like, it felt like I was just random thing to uh, uh, talk about, but I was just reading it on IMDb, and I was expecting kind of more stuff to be there. I sw- yeah, I swear, last year when I watched it, I remember looking up trivia in, like, the usual places I go to, and I do remember, like, one or two points that weren't in any of them. Like, I remember... um. One of the trivia points mentioned, and I didn't confirm this anywhere, so maybe I am going crazy, but, like, I think I read that in the English dub they chose to have the the villain do the voice for the very final line, the, yeah, I'm me thing. Okay. Hmm. Yeah, and I didn't see that in any of the usual places I look in, so I don't know hmm. if stuff has been deleted or if I went even further with my re- uh, looking up, but... Mm. Yeah, it it did surprise me a little bit how little there is, considering that I think I did read this up and I would have remembered that. I really liked um, the closing credits, uh, the song that played at the end. Mm -hmm. It was one of those great ones where, you know, it's just a fun little cheesy song, but the lyrics are meaningful, but without being too overtly like, this song's meaningful, this song encapsulates a movie you just watched. Um, so I, I'm glad you used the word cheesy. I thought the same thing. Yeah, it was cheesy. Like I liked it, but I kind of liked it. Like I kind of like that the film, um, although it's a darker movie, I wouldn't say that. And although it deals with a lot of mental health kind of stuff, 
I wouldn't say that this is a depressing nightmare of a movie. I mean, it has nightmarish scenes, of course, obviously, the the uh, staged rape scene and then the attempted rape scene later are very intense, and obviously the chase scenes, but overall I wouldn't say that this is uh, uh, as dark of a, like, a truly dark misery affair. So when you have mm-hmm. the cheesy little bit at the end where she's like, I am real, and the, the music kicks in, it didn't feel like a complete tonal shift out of nowhere. I felt like, no, this kind of makes sense, and I kind of welcome the levity, I kind of welcome it as well yeah, it was a really it was a really upbeat note to end on i know a lot of people interpret that in a dark way but mm. yeah i liked it i liked it um when you first watched it did you mm. um did you guess who the real villain was or was it a surprise it, it surprised me and even on this viewing when i was looking out for little things like oh i know it's you so let's see everything you do they were all pretty inconspicuous. There was nothing that really pointed like, oh man, it really is you. But there mm. were little things that's like, oh yeah, because it's you, I can see this sort of leading into that idea. Mm. It, I don't think it's too obvious, but I mean, there are little things there. Yeah, I had my suspicions about it being her because she would conveniently be absent at points in the story. Like, they not only like just oh, her character's not in the scene, but there were many times in the movie, and again, in a positive way, this isn't negative, this adds to the the enjoyability, is characters would specifically state that she wasn't there for these reasons. And I found that a little suspicious, because obviously in a movie like this, everyone's under suspicion of who is the killer. Like, there were points where I'm like, oh, it's our main character, right? She is crazy. But then there comes a point where I'm like, no, no, that can't be it, because the TV show that she's in is doing that as the story. And I'm like, then then the movie wouldn't do that. That would be too much at that point with how much time we had left. And so it did still come as a surprise to me in a way because I didn't expect the really surreal quality of the, you know, the floating pop avatar version of her being just her dressed up. Like, I, I don't know. For some reason, I really did think that was a part, like fully a part of her um, of our main character's imagination. I didn't actually think that it was her friend dressed up and our f- main character was so fucked up she couldn't tell at points. Yeah, well, I feel like I feel like at times it would have been an illusion, oh, but yeah. definitely at the end it becomes quite real. Well, yeah, but there are times in the movie where when you think back you'd go, that would have have to have been her, right? Like when um, the, the stalker guy is on his computer and he's talking to her like i imagine that's the real chick talking to him convincing him to go kill her right but wasn't he reading an email from her see see this is the thing i'm like i'm not too sure like i guess so like i i for some reason i took it at face value a little bit too but that's the thing like maybe before my rewatch i'm going to notice that that's what i'm saying like i didn't expect that aspect to when it played out i didn't expect it to play out that way and also like it is very odd too at the end like she's wearing a mask of her but then no she's not because in reflections it's just her so it's well, she's wearing a wig i remember a, yeah, I don't know. Like, I thought it was a mask at first because it like knocks off, and then she's like, "Ah, oh, my face" and all that. But uh, yeah, I thought that was a transformation. Yeah, it was a transformation. But I also like that she didn't die at the end. I was expecting that her falling on the glass to be it and her be dead. 
Yeah, it kind of gave me a vibe of like, even though this was that was an accident of uh, unforgettable. It reminds me of Ghost in the film Ghost with Patrick Swayze, the bad guy gets killed in the exact same way where he falls on some broken glass in a window and gets mm. impaled through and then he gets dragged to hell because it's supernatural. Um, I didn't expect any supernatural elements in the movie and I was glad that there wasn't really any um you know like it's really more cerebral and psychological in my reading of it Mm -hmm. so that was a pleasant thing um i really uh did enjoy i kind of did enjoy that it was just kind of a grounded um well grounded you know obviously it goes off into flights of fancy but you know thriller drama did you have a favorite sequence in the movie when you first saw it and does it still remain as your favorite on the rewatches I don't know if I have a favorite, but I remember I always thought a lot about the the opening sequence where she's actually performing at that venue as mm. a part of the idol trio. Um, just a lot of, I guess, tone setting is done there. Like mm. the film begins with it begins like on like a Super Sentai show or a Power Rangers type of thing, and then it just moves away from that to like people in this area just talking and it has this very Mm. real feeling because I have seen, you know, depictions of like, uh, you know, obsessed fans or otaku type characters in media. And there's always like a, you know, exaggerated anime quality to them. Whereas here they were just like real people just standing around looking blank and just making, you know, statements about how like, Oh yeah, they made this decision. It's going to probably suck. Yeah. Let's go do this thing. And then it cuts to the show and, like, you know, they're preparing for it. They're very tense and the audience is excited. And then you have this, these, like, four delinquent characters who fight against this really, you know, handsome, obsessed guy who very clearly Mm. is obsessed with the main idol. And just a lot of little things going on here that set the stage. Yeah. I, um, another sequence that I, um, really did feel was very impactful was for me like and it stuck with me is when she's filming the scene of getting raped at the club and you have the guy on top of her and they have to stay in their poses and he apologizes and she's doing the she's kind of like falling back into that kind of pop idol mode where she's like it's okay he 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 you know that typical kind of female role that everyone wants her to be in the movie and she's like it's okay but then once the scene plays out and she just starts like nope this isn't no and she just like looks at the light and kind of blacks out basically just like disassociates and I found that very um very memorable and very well done because it acts as a rape scene in a way because you know she kind of doesn't want to do it after a certain point but obviously in the context of the story you know they're filming a scene it's it's not actually real and all that but it kind of feeds into this kind of um weird sense of agency she has kind of later in the movie when things start to happen it's like was that real was that was, was that just a part of the show she's in who knows i really enjoyed that sequence I did too, and it was definitely one of the ones that I was thinking about the most in terms of like, oh, I'm recommending this film and it has this kind of scene in it. Um, I was wondering how that would play out, and I definitely always remember, you know, the guy on top of her, how he apologizes, and it gives you this very real sense of like, no, 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 this is, mm. this is an acting job. He he is being professional about it. He recognizes how 
uh, intense it is. Um, mm. And yeah, that sequence much later in the film where it's playing out where like the detective characters in that show are talking about, how, oh, she has dissociative identity disorder. Like mm. that was a real <laughs> out of left field punch. And then it's real like, oh, no, no, no. This is also part of the story. Just <laughs> a lot of things keeping you on your toes. Like, oh, we're finally getting an answer. No, wait, it's a TV show. Do you think? Yeah, the film does a lot of cutting. Sorry, what? Oh, I was going to say, do you think in their TV show where they say she has disassociative identity disorder, then then someone, then a psychiatrist walks in and she's like, I have a theory that they have superpowers, you know, and it's just a part of the M. Night Shyamalan universe? <laughs> I was thinking to myself, like, we watched something recently that had disassociative uh, identity disorder. What was it? And now you reminded me it's Glass or uh, Split. Split, yeah. Yeah, I, I... I, you know, I, I usually get very, I don't know, uncomfortable, prudish, I guess, or a little judgmental with nudity in my, in anime, um, mm-hmm. Japanese animation, but when it's done in his films, um, I don't have a problem with it as much because I don't get the overwhelming sense like I do with others that this is... Um, just to get people off and nothing more. This, it felt like, especially in this one, it felt very deliberate. It felt very like it was making a statement that it was actually saying something. It wasn't just, oh, we want to draw pubes or we want to draw nipples. It felt like they actually had something to say about the industry, something to say about how women... Uh, uh, you know, have to objectify themselves to certain circumstances, but also, like, she felt like she wanted to do it. Is it right? Is it wrong? Was it right that that is a part of the reason that the that the villain becomes the villain is because she sees this beloved idol turn into a piece of smut in her eyes. Uh, and yeah. I felt like with his films, it always kind of feels very deliberate the nudity and not just for the perviness sake that uh you know a lot of others fall into and that japan me japanese media falls into a lot yeah yeah definitely for this film it lends itself to its themes because the whole thing is like the duality between who she is and her as a performer like every time you see her being sexualized as part of a performance it's very clear that, you know, because they say she's a good actress, that she's putting it on. Like, mm. during the rape scene at the very beginning, before they yell action, you know, she's, like, kind of nervous on that stage. Then when he says action, she just immediately enters this trance of, mm. you know, with all this, like, sexual energy going on. Um, definitely a lot of purpose going on. Yeah, yeah, and... Uh, also, to me, the most striking scene in terms of nudity-wise is when she's just kind of in the fetal position in the in her bathtub, um, you know, very vulnerable. Like, obviously, using nudity in any storytelling, obviously, you will evoke that sense of being vulnerable because, you know, you're naked in many ways, you know, not just in the sense of you don't have clothes on, but in several ways. And that scene in particular really strikes a chord with that. And she's, like, you know, screaming underwater and like, you know, like she's just so miserable and upset. And 
it, that one is particularly uh, striking scene. I can see why Darren Aronofsky wanted to buy the rights for nearly 60 grand so that he could use it in Requiem for a Dream. <laughs> yes, a very indie move. Very indie move, yeah, Darren Aronofsky. Um, you know what I love about Darren Aronofsky is if you watch an interview with him, Bartek, he sounds exactly like a Brooklyn cab driver. Like, he doesn't sound like what you <laughs> think he would. Like, when you look a picture of him, he looks like your typical hipster, pretentious director man, and you think he'll talk like this man, but, you know, he's like, yo, whoa, so what? Requiem for a dream. <laughs> he's very like, get out of here. <laughs> very funny. Yeah, I remember, I, I remember last year you told me that, and, um... It was shortly after I watched Perfect Blue, and I was like, oh, Ryan's going to be interested in this trivia point when we end up watching it, and I'll tell him about it. But then I was like, oh, he's brought up Darren Aronofsky completely mm. coincidentally. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because like I've said, like since you brought it up, I've heard mentioned that, that uh, Perfect Blue and Paprika has been borrowed and heavily inspired and or, you know, directly taken from other directors, you know, whether it be Nolan or, or Aronofsky. Uh, so, you know, people kind of go more with Inception that it's just blatant theft because Nolan's like, I've never even heard of the movie before. Or at least Darren Aronofsky's like, I bought the rights, so I can do what I want. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. (laughs) Which is fairer, I guess. But, uh, we got to talk about, I think, the scene that maybe leaves a lot of people confused, maybe the sequence that maybe tests a lot of people's patience if they weren't already on board with it. It tested my wife's patience a bit, but it was probably the best sequence in the movie, which is, we already kind of mentioned it before, the the different takes sequence, the take two, take three, when she's really disassociating and when she's really losing a grip on what's real and what's not and what day it is and stuff like that. That whole sequence is really quite cerebral and impressive. And it, uh, Could you give me a bit more specifics about which scene this is? Is this the one... It's the bit in which she's waking up in bed over and over again, and mm-hmm. it's cutting back and forth between when she's fucking up her lines on set with the other actress, and... By each... seeing... Yeah, by seeing the stalker, and then the second time it was something else, she said the wrong line. It's like, oh, what are you talking about? Yeah, yeah, she said the name of her friend because she thought she was having... uh, She may have had actually had uh, a meeting with her. She broke the mug or bowl. Yeah, the teacup or something. Yeah, and then she's like, the blood is real. I I didn't... I never looked at that and thought, like, oh, this is a scene that tests the viewer's patience. That's interesting that you bring that up. Well, I think, you know, it is kind of on purposely doing that. It's becoming more and more disorientating. It's throwing away the conventions of the storytelling mechanisms had up until that point for just diving headfirst into the disorientation that our main character is feeling. Thus, it's making us feel disorientated. And that in itself becomes uh, a testing of one's patience. Even her, the main character, even she gets fed up with not understanding what's going on. Mm-hmm. Do you know what that vo- that character's voice actress is famous for? Like in terms of a role that she does that's still ongoing? I'm going to guess Pokemon, probably? Yeah, she's the Japanese Ash Ketchum. <laughs> that's, that's that's actually pretty perfect. That's, um... <laughs> 97 till today, still. So, in the English dub of uh, Perfect Blue, did they hire the actress who does the voice of Ash Ketchum <laughs> in, the, uh, in the American uh, What's her name, one? Veronica something, Taylor? 
Because if they didn't cast her, that is a, a damn shame. It is a missed opportunity if there has ever been one. That would be great. It's also funny how, like, in this film, she doesn't really sing that well, but in, like, the Pokemon franchise, she sings some of the openings, apparently. Well, yeah, that's fair enough. One of the questions we've got to ask ourselves, because I don't fully know, I read the IMDb trivia, but is, is what is the meaning behind the the title Perfect Blue? What does it mean? Because I'm not fully sure what it means. There's the description on IMDb about the blue sky, but what do you think? Yeah, I didn't really know either. I think the only thing I read online that uh, kind of lends uh, an idea towards it is... Uh, Near the end, actually, no, not near the end, at the end, like, that day when everything's, you know, all good, she's in the car, she says, I'm real, there is an actual, like, clear sky. The rest of the film was kind of, you know, darkish in tone, yeah. Yeah, I took it as just before having watched the movie, I kind of saw the poster, it has lots of dark blues on it, a very forlorn-looking woman, and I kind of took it as, you are going to be seeing a film about a perfect person, which is kind of what we get at the beginning, she's this perfect idol, going through a blue phase, going through a depressive phase in her life, and in a way, we do get that, because the series of events from her stalker and her so-called friend tormenting her and playing psychological head games has caused a massive depressive streak in her life. And I guess that's kind of all I have to say on Perfect Blue. It's a pretty entertaining psychological thriller with a twist in it, not the level of M. Night Shyamalan unbreakable and glass level twisty turny mind games, but the film is very uh, good at what it's trying to achieve. You can watch it just at the face value of it being just a pure thriller, and you can get the entertainment of, on the rewatcher, seeing the deeper meanings and metaphors and stuff from the film. Uh, would you recommend yeah, I mean, it's it's no glass, but it's worth checking out. So, it is my recommendation for the next episode, and I'm going to go with the, I want to say 2016 film, The Neon Demon. The film directed by and made by Nicholas Winding Refn, or Winding Refn, depends who you are, the guy behind Drive, Bronson, Only God Forgives. I think this is his... The last movie he's done of recent, I think he did a mini-series after this. So, uh, look forward to checking that out, listening people. Make sure that you do. Oh, oh, and Bartek, just a fun little thing. I guess I've kind of foreshadowed this in the past, but uh, you, the film Saved, the film Saved that we did uh, a while back, the lead actress in that film, uh, Jenna Malone, I kind of commented that I wasn't used to seeing her play a, a normal person because of what she's like in the in the Neon Demon, and, uh, and uh, well, we're finally going to get to see what I was talking about, see if I'm actually right or not. We both foreshadowed our Spooky Month picks. <laughs> yeah, we sure did. So, listening people, make sure to hit us up on the social medias of Facebook, Twitter, at Spit and Polish Presents, Email us at spitandpolished at gmail.com and make sure to rate and review us on whatever podcatcher allows it. And like I said, The Neon Demon is next week, so make sure that you watch it so you're all up to date. Now, Bartek, 
This episode, this whole entire month of covering spookies and spooies and spoozies has made me really scared, really terrified. I would love it if you could calm me down with some, uh, some calming words of wisdom. Could you do that for me? Sure. Um, perfect, blue, uh, frog, uh, green, <laughs> Soviet western poster. You're just listing uh, off things in your room. Me. Another picture of me. Um, a lot of frogs. Bowling trophy. Uh, drink I bought yesterday. Oh, what kind of drink? It's um, very important you let us know. Cedar Classic Creaming Soda. Oh, well, that makes me feel so much better. Thank God you let me know that. I'm not... Spe- it was really expensive, like $120 Oof. divided by 10. 